Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbled Geek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... I am Eric Sibyl. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And let's see how this goes tonight. <laughs> Possibly, uh, at least one of us is under the influence of something, so we'll just see. We'll just see what happens. Um, each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both of these series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up through the episodes that we are discussing tonight. Alas, there are no episodes tonight, because uh, tonight is not... Uh, tonight's a book. Uh, this week, as the world of Avatar reels from the choice we saw Korra make at the end of book two... Uh, we return oh so briefly to a simpler, perhaps more innocent time as we discuss The Rift, the third volume in uh, writer Jean Luen Yang's official Avatar The Last Airbender comics series from Dark Horse Comics. Uh, volume one, The Promise, dealt with uh, the Angang realizing the difficulty of truly uniting the four nations after the end of the Hundred Year War. Volume two, The Search, addressed the mystery surrounding Zuko and Azula's long-lost mother, Ursa. Uh, and sadly featured zero Toph. Uh, tonight, the rift fortunately brings Toph back, hallelujah, uh, and returns the focus back to Aang as he begins trying to shape the unified city of Yudao into what will one day become Republic City uh, and continues to struggle with the changes that come from having spent a century frozen in a damn iceberg. But, uh, but before we get to that, before we discuss all that, uh, there was... Uh, there's one other comic I wanted to say some words about here in our little banter section, our little pre-show. Um, I tried to get both of my co-hosts to read this. Uh, Arlo, I'm not really sure why. I don't know why I cared that he reads it. He doesn't read comics anymore. He's not a comic person. But what I'm going to talk about, this is... Look, look, <laughs> it's not that I don't read comics. I don't read, I don't read or watch anything. I, I don't consume media. I mean, it's, it'll be a miracle... It'll be a miracle if we find out that you've actually read the book we're here to talk about tonight. So. We were supposed to read a book for tonight? Yeah, exactly. God damn it. Why? Hold on a second. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I want everyone to know that Paul told me I should read this uh, six hours ago, maybe, <laughs> is a, when, I got the, when I got the tweet that, that I, should, I should read this. That's it's a, it's when a I single issue. It's a single issue. It, will, it does not take that long. Paul, we are busy people with busy lives. Yes, I'm, I, I, I know. Which is why at least one of you is drunk and the other one is... One fuck, of us, I've heard, is a knows. great, big, bright, shining star. <laughs> so. Anyways, the reason why I really want to... Hold Eric, on, I'm not, I'm not letting you continue oh, yet. I'm not letting sake. you continue yet. I wonder if at home the audience can tell which one of us is under the influence because I'm not sure that I can at this point. I mean, I'm it's not, not naming It's not names. a clear decision. I mean, it is not obvious. This is very difficult. And if anyone can figure it out by the end of this podcast, you should write in to Monkey Yahtzee and with your guess. And then you'll... Write in and win a no prize. You'll, you'll win a glass of wine or something. I don't know. But uh, anyways, no, the reason I wanted Eric to read this is because this is the most Eric comic book that I've ever read. Uh, I'm talking about the backstagers. Number one, this, uh, came out, it actually came out last week and I only got to it this week, but, uh, it's published by, um, boom studios, imprint boom box, which also gives us things like uh, lumberjanes, Jonesy and Goldie Vance. It's an all ages book. It's written by James Tinney in the fourth and illustrated by trans artist Ryan. I don't know how to say this last name, Sig or Cy. I'm not sure. 
but at any rate, so the tagline for this is, or one of them that I've seen, is all the world's a stage, but what happens behind the curtain is pure magic. Um, Eric, I have no idea if you are even remotely familiar with this, but the premise of this is uh, it's, it's, well, here's the little description that I wrote up for it. So Jory's first day as the new kid at St. Genesius Prep, an all-boys high school. Uh, his mom's new job keeps her out long hours, so she wants him to find something to do with his time. Fortunately, St. Genesius has a drama club. Uh, the diva McQueen brothers mistake him for part of the crew and send him on a mission to get a prop from the bowels of the theater basement. That's where Jory meets the backstagers, Sasha, Hunter, Beckett, and Aziz, and they welcome him into the crazy Alice through the looking glass, Tardis in a teapot world behind the curtain. Um, so this is all, this is like, uh, and, and I tweeted today, I thought I would get some feedback from people, but nobody responded. I tweeted today that uh, fans of, Eric Sipple's uh, Broken Magic absolutely have to read Backstagers. I'm going to sue. <laughs> that's that's really the only response to that, this nonsense. Okay, is, is, okay. so you're going to get litigious. No, you know, it's okay. It's okay. I would never write anything set in a in an all-boys prep school because I don't have any idea what that is. I'm a, I'm a public school kid, right. so I don't know what that would work like. So that that is definitely from a, a different perspective than I wrote. Actually, that sounds really neat. Honestly, that sounds pretty cool. This actually does sound up my alley, and I wish that some jerk had told me with more than, like, six hours that I should have read this, because well, I probably would have. We live in a digital age, uh, Sipple. Uh, comicsology is at your fingertips at all times. It literally would have taken you 30 seconds to download the first sip issue of this and it would have taken you 10 minutes to read so six hours is uh, plenty of time <laughs> i don't know i'm not really sure why you couldn't have pulled this off but well i mean i i could read it in less than six hours but i need to know i need to know i need a little more impetus if you're going to be like hey we should be talking about this in six hours i mean it takes me like six hours to bother to listen to you in the first place so fair enough fair enough wow wow this is some uh like this is almost a rivalry uh, like that of Aang and Toph in the book we're discussing tonight. Okay, yeah, so that was, a, we're... That, was a night, that was a heck of a segue, and I think it is good that you said that, Arlo, because I wanted to go back to the beginning of this podcast where Paul said we were going back to a simpler, more innocent time. <laughs> a simpler, more innocent time where the two closest, two of the closest friends of the series that you love, come to serious blows. Yes. Yes, definitely simpler and more innocent. I was being well, I, I'm happy that we've been segued completely away from the my my banter about the backstagers, the people at home. Uh, I will break our usual format and we will include a link in the show notes to an article on the about this, uh, because this is a truly diverse cast, both in terms of race and sexuality. Uh, it's written by uh, a bi writer and illustrated by a trans artist uh, and I, the characters are very diverse but anyways we no no actually i want to stop there for a second you're 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 th this sounds actually awesome and i and and that the diverse creators is like a a big a big deal and it's that's something that they any industry not just the comics industry movies aren't any better and and books are not much better either really blow it on so uh, Paul was absolutely right to trumpet this, and I'm going to be making an effort to read this extremely soon, probably this week, and I think that that means the rest of you should too. So, 
It sounds yes. dumb. There you go. And Arlo and there's all, there's all the recommendation you need, ladies and gentlemen. That's it. <laughs> okay, now we can fall for. Uh, if it's Arlo's. not written in like a dead language, I don't really care. It it kind of get as diverse as you want. If it's not written, you know, it's, like it's written uh, in English, Arlo. So you're in good shape. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Exactly. Good point. Let's move on. I segued us like ten minutes ago. Yes. All right. So well, I always segue because you were wrong to segue us. I was, I was being sort of ironic when I talked about this being a, a simpler, more innocent time, uh, because none of these books, this is the third volume, uh, none of these volumes have necessarily been uh, simple or innocent. They're, they deal with some pretty complex stuff. Um, and boy, did we say... this one at the right place. Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. All right. Sorry, so... you, Arlo was going to make a bad joke. I, I'm sorry. No. Arlo. No, never no. mind. The no. the moment is gone. Oh, okay, no, seriously, I, I'm actually really glad to hear that. Cause that was why I brought it up, so that you could explicitly say that you weren't going to bother making your joke. <laughs> <laughs> I was oh I was going to say I was because Paul said this, this is going to be even now that it's, I'm doing it after the heat of the moment and like the the cold of the moment. This is going to be so much worse. Uh, Paul said that he was being ironic, and I was going to say. Did, did he feel like he was being general old ironic? Wow. Wow. See, I want I want you all to know that I, I psychologically engineered Arlo into not telling the joke and then re-psychologically engineered <laughs> telling the joke in a way that wouldn't make it funny. So I want you all, <laughs> all to be proud of me for what I did. In that I, li- I like that you thought it would have been funny at all under any circumstance. What, whatever I did made it worse. That's all that matters. <laughs> <It did. laughs> Flawless victory. <laughs> I've, I've lost any semblance of control. Who wants to Remi- talk? Reminder to audience: Which of us? Yeah, exactly. Is under the influence. Exactly. Tonight? Well, right, by the time ahead. we're by the time we're done, I will be under the influence of something, na- namely you two. Uh, all right. Who wants Who wants to talk about this book? No, 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 no. It's not who. There's someone very specific who gets to go first. Who's that? Who gets to go first, Paul? Come on, you should know this. Well, I, you're both newbies, but all right, Arlo, you, you're going to... No, that's not... Oh, my God, you got it wrong. I get to be the newbie on the comics. This is this is set. We've discussed this before. We discussed it last week. <laughs> okay. Well, it takes me at least a week before I start paying attention to you. <laughs> all right. No, I, I'm sorry, audience. I, I love getting to be the newbie occasionally. It's it's fun. I This is one of a rare occasion, and Paul only got one time, which was the amazing The Last Airbender live action film yeah so he definitely pulled the, the shorts the shortest possible straw on that and one. if m night Shyamalan has his way paul will be able to be the newbie again in just a couple years oh <laughs> yes oh yeah. good if if m night Shyamalan does another movie we will podcast about it and paul will be the one to start us off on <laughs> yes assuming, um, anyway, assuming so, paul lives that long yes all right eric so you get to be the comics newbie uh, go okay, ahead so, so the rift all right so straight up i I think this may have been the best one. So I have, I have loved all of these a lot. Um, I weirdly, okay. If you had asked me, if you would explain to me the basic plot of these three and maybe even the future ones, I don't know. I haven't read them yet, but if you would explain to me the basic plot of the three we've read so far and said, which one is going to be your favorite? I would have said the search. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's, it's about Zuko's mom. This right. is what I've been waiting for. This is absolutely going to be the best one. It is actually, I think the weakest of the three and that doesn't mean to say it's bad it's not bad but the promise and the rift are just that strong and 
The Rift has some amazing, amazing stuff going on. It has a lot of interesting themes being woven around, a lot of great plot lines. It's got a major Toph plot line. It brings back Toph's parents Mm -hmm. and deals with the spirit world. And I I made a comment before about how how wonderfully this lines up with when we finished. And it does because it deals very explicitly with the, the, the titular rift is about the rift between the humans and spirit world. That's the most surface version. There are other rifts throughout the the story in this, but the the one that gets called out is the the fact that a rift often develops between the spirit and human or the mortal world. So, and it, it deals with the fact that the avatar maybe isn't doing great at, at their job of maintaining a balance there's there's a, a and I, I know this is a little bit of a further on the line but there's a point where someone calls out that when given the choice between humans and spirits and being forced to choose the avatar will always choose humans and because the, the av- because the avatar is human yep and that makes the avatar a poor arbiter of balance between those two worlds and anyways i love this i love where it sits itself it it really resonates strongly with the end of Korra season two and it's also just a pretty great story. This is really well done on a whole lot of levels. I, I don't even think I can say more than that without starting to delve into things. So I'm going to pass it off to the rest of you all. But I I was really happy with this book. That's awesome. I, I'm not entirely sure I expected that. But uh, well, let's go to Arlo next. What, uh, what did you think? Uh, I think all three of these books have been uniformly strong. Um, I actually, and again, I, I feel like with, just as with the previous two we've discussed, I feel like uh, rereading them would only make them stronger. But unfortunately, I've only had the chance to read this one once. Um, and I actually, and I do not mean this uh, in, a, in a negative way, it's probably my least favorite of the three. Hmm. Uh, but... Uh, like Eric said, you know, his least favorite is the search, but the search is still really good. And that's exactly how I feel uh, about this one. So um, this is the only one of these that I had only read once prior to this. I'd read um, the promise and the search. I'd read both of those a few times. And then uh, the rift I'd only read once before. And so my memory of it was a little shaky and I was telling Arlo off mic earlier that uh, um, I I kind of remembered this in my memory. This was the weakest of the three. And I, I wondered how you guys were going to react to it since you had such glowingly positive reactions response to the first two books. I was kind of worried uh, about if the third would work. So I'm overjoyed to hear you, Eric, say that you loved it so much. Uh, maybe that's because it has a kaiju battle in it. I don't know. Um, but uh, Arlo, so why? Well, Eric, what did you, what do you think pushed it to number one? And Arlo, why did you why do you think it's the least? No, no. First off, Paul, you've got to say how you felt about it. You, did, you didn't actually oh, oh, tell yeah. us how you felt the second time through. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I liked it a lot. I liked this so much better than I remembered liking it based on a single reading. Um, my what I remembered as the shaky bit was the end. And maybe I'm conflating the whole Korra Kaiju battle with the Kaiju battle at the end of this. But I, I seemed to remember that I wasn't a fan of the, the final showdown between uh, general old iron and, and uh, 
Aang and with his gigantic thing body or whatever that was. Uh, did you enjoy it more this time, though? I, yeah, much better. I played much better on my second read than I remembered it from from back whenever I read it the first time. And uh, can we just say that the kaiju fight in in the rift is so much better yes. than the kaiju fight at the end of uh, Korra book two? Yes. Let's so let's be fair. Better. Let's be fair here. They had the chance to see the kaiju battle in Korra season two first. <laughs> And I don't think sure, the kaiju battle true. in Korra Season 2 is terrible, but it's that, it's weird. The problem with the kaiju battle in Korra Season 2 is not that it's a bad kaiju battle. It's not that it's a bad giant thing battle. It's that the plot around it doesn't justify it. That's the problem right. with that it battle. It seems and the very plot out of the left field. Yes. Yes. Um, I agree. Whereas this was perfect, and General Old Iron in the... The, the limited space that we get to see that character and get to learn about that character um, <laughs> is vastly more compelling than Unalak, who we got to watch for an entire season of television. I completely agree. I knew that's where you were going with that. Because General Let's... Old Iron actually has a motivation and a point of view. <laughs> Unalak for, uh, twirls his non-existent mustache uh, and wants to become the Dark Avatar. So Let, let's let's just remember one more time that in season four of Korra, we're going to revisit Unalak and it's going to be in the episode. We don't think any of us are going to want to talk about, but we're going to get back to We're going to get back to Unalak in season four of Korra. For real? We're going to we're going to rediscuss Unalak in season four. There, very, like... very briefly, there's going to be a moment where we're going to say, all right. Yeah, he, he mentioned Unalak. this. He mentioned this when we uh, the last time and and. Really, I, I was like, I'm I'm confused. I'm not sure oh, what he's referring. There, to there is a glorious, a glorious, glorious moment. The the our entire feelings about Unalak are going to get their uh, comeuppance. Oh, geez. Okay, I genuinely okay. can't anyway, remember what this is. But and, I, uh, I, mean, I don't mean that. But anyways, no, you're you're absolutely right. General Old Iron is a much better villain. Hell, the uncle of whatever his name is, I can't remember either of their names, frankly. And they're <laughs> both and the villain that uncle is a more a more understandable villain than Unlock is. Are you are you talking about uh, Satoru's uh, uncle Loban? Loban, yes, yes, okay. that's it. I'm bad with names generally, but uh, having just read it, I actually read this um, mostly today. I, I will say because we didn't have a whole lot of time to read this before between the last episode and this, so I read this pretty quickly. So names, I did not have a chance to go back and like relook at names, but yes, that is it, Loban. Loban is a one-dimensional villain and is a more compelling villain than Unlock. I agree, and he even has the redemption arc. Right. Yeah, sort of. I mean, it's not justified, but no, yeah. yeah, not really. <laughs> I mean, he becomes uh, an air acolyte by the end for for no reason that I maybe I missed a panel where he has some kind of revelation before then. That's no. probably possible. No, not really. It, it really like his his moment of revelation is just that. Uh, his nephew saved helped save his life and so he becomes a shiny happy person from that moment on but satoru tells him to let go and so it... he lets go of the past and then i guess embraces like a really backwards looking but but isn't philosophy. it but isn't it but anyway hold on wait but isn't it um katara who saves him it's not even an airbender who saves him right it's right, katara right, but... katara saves him but Satoru is the one who tells him to let go, but Satoru is not a bender at all. Um, why, doesn't, why doesn't he become a Southern Water Tribe water acolyte, then? <laughs> why doesn't he become like, like a huge nerd like his nephew? 
hey, the the huge nerd like his nephew gets to have an entire plot with Toth. Right. So he wishes he could be huge nerd nephew. <laughs> All right, let's talk a little bit about uh we haven't really discussed what this story is about. So uh so far these follow-up comic storylines they've they've really kind of been focusing on they've been paying particular attention to the the difficulty of change, the cost and confusion that comes from the transition. So um like the first one it was uh picking up the pieces after the the you know, the happy ending of uh, Avatar The Last Airbender book three um, and accepting or realizing what that meant, all of the changes and how difficult that was going to be. Uh, the second one was about, um, you know, the change of family dynamics and all that. How do we think this one fits in? So this is this also has family dynamics because, Eric, like you said, we it brings Toph's family back into the picture. Um but yeah, so th- this book is all about, uh, they kind of all have been, but this one is particularly about the struggle uh, that uh, primarily Aang has with letting go of the past and embracing the fact that we're, that, you know, it's a different world. I really love that this is a theme that all of these books are exploring, because if you think about it, so many uh, comic books that pick up where TV series left off, it's not just that they're not as good as the shows were, it's that they feel fundamentally pointless. It's as if someone said, because I assume someone did say, hey, we made a bunch of money on this one thing, let's make more money on this other thing. And that's the only motivating factor. There's no reason for those stories to continue. Whereas uh, an avatar easily could have been the same thing. You know, we, we got a full complete story on the TV show. It felt like that story came to an end, except for the dangling thread about Zuko's mother. So mm-hmm. glad that was addressed. Um, but there, you know, the story ended. However, given that the world of avatar is so rich and given that we see what, what happens, you know, a hundred years later uh, in the legend of Korra, there's, there's fertile ground there to show like how, how the, the, the transformed world we see at the end of avatar becomes the future of the legend of Korra. And so I love that, um, you know, uh, Jean Lu and Yang Konitsko and, uh, DiMartino, they, they jumped on that and have made that the, the driving point, of these books because that gives them a purpose and a reason to exist. Yeah. And I think, I, and I, uh, yeah, no, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to, I was just saying, I, I think Paul's right. I think this one in particular, um, is very much about, uh, progress versus traditionalism and how the, the, the compromises that you have to reach in order for progress to happen. Um, and I think that's an, inc- you know, at this point, I, I shouldn't say this because I said this so many times about uh, Avatar and Korra. But for something that's that's theoretically aimed at, at children or that is an all ages book, I, I, I am I admire the very mature, uh, nuanced uh, themes at work here, which, which, again, should be no surprise at this point. Yeah, Eric, uh, how do you feel about that? Do you think so? The third installment of this, uh, have we are we starting to get tired of paying so much attention to, um, you know, change and progress, or are we still happy with the way that this is going? 
I'm I'm delighted. I think that this. I mean, if I had a complaint about Avatar, it was that it had a very simplistic good and evil battle. I mean, we talked about that. That's not me saying that now. That's was sort of the uh, we talked about that a lot. That Ozai is a pretty one dimensional villain. That we mm-hmm. that there were lots of great moral gray areas in the side stories, mm-hmm. but not so much in the Fire Nation stuff. The Fire Nation was largely evil. It was Ozai bad. was the proto Unalak. <laughs> no, oh come on! No, Unlock Unlock doesn't even doesn't even can't even get to the level of pure evil. He, he merges with the most pure evil spirit of all time, and Ozai is still like, nah, I'm eviler, <laughs> way eviler. <laughs> um, but so getting this is amazing, and I love it because one of the things I love about Korra, the reason my heart is so with Korra, is that Korra deals with a lot of these very complicated issues of. That where an avatar can't just stomp in and go into the avatar state and beat someone up. I mean, the biggest problem Aang had with Ozai was that Aang was not powerful enough to stop Ozai. Mm-hmm. If Aang was a fully-fledged avatar when he came out of the ice, the plot of that story would have been Aang flies to the Fire Kingdom, the Fire Nation, and beats up Ozai, right? That's <laughs> right. the whole plot of the story. Right. And, and Korra takes on stories where it doesn't matter how hard she can punch things. There are more complicated issues at play. And now we have Aang as a fully-fledged avatar dealing with these same things. And we are finally getting what it means for Aang to be an avatar. And I love it. I could read 30 more volumes of these books if they were written this well. If they kept it being written this well, I could read an endless amount of stories about Aang and Zuko and everyone else trying to form a new world out of what the Fire Nation had destroyed. I, I don't think I get, I don't think I get sick of this. You know, what's funny is you mentioned that Aang is presented with problems where he can easily just punch things and Korra is not. While I feel like Korra would love to be able to just punch things and Aang does not want to punch things. Yep. That, that, to me, that's a great way of putting it because that is like the problem with – I mean like, that's actually a, an a intentional problem in Avatar that Aang does not want a problem where he has to go punch things. Yeah. And, and besides his lack of power, it's also – not in his character to want to go and just beat the shit out of someone. If that had been Korra, Korra would have been so happy to beat Ozai into the ground. I mean, if Korra, if Korra had been in the rift, she would have flattened that town within the first couple of pages. <laughs> she wouldn't have gone to talk to anyone. Exactly. She'd have been like, this doesn't belong here, and would have stomped on the ground and that would have been the end of the town. Exactly. She, she would have looked at it, it's like the its ashes and been like, I'm the Avatar, you got to deal with me. <laughs> Um, so, well, speaking so of, are you, so, so Paul, you asked that question. I'm wondering, are you, how are you feeling about the, the uh, meditation on the difficulty of change? I, I am still liking it. Um, we've, we've now reached the point where, I mean, I'm now in the same boat as you guys. I don't know the story going forward. Uh, I had read all three of these volumes before you guys hadn't. I have, there is a fourth volume out. That's the next one we're going to talk about. There is a fifth volume that will be coming out and it hasn't been announced if there's any after that but i i as far as i know it's going to keep going but uh, anyways we've reached the point now where i i'm as in the dark as you guys are about where it's going to go from here i don't know if the themes that have been set up and and looked at in these first three volumes i don't know if volume four is going to do the same stuff i feel like at a certain point okay so so here's the thing the the biggest change that we or the most obvious symbol of the change that we're dealing with now at this point in these stories is 
the the growth of the united city of Yudao, um we're seeing all of the groundwork laid for what will eventually turn out to be republic city in the legend of korra um and that's kind of i, I feel like that is the yardstick that that we as informed fans uh you know that's the lens through which we're reading these books these stories um I, I don't know if the next two volumes of this are still dealing with how does Yudao become Republic City. You know, I might want to see it branch out a little more, but uh, but, but so far I'm happy. Oh, no. The next step, the next book is exactly what we want. I can already tell. Okay. So we, I got two indications from the, the plot description and then something in this book. The plot. So the next book is called North and South. We've talked about this a no, little the, bit. No, I the think. next one. The next one is Smoke and Shadows. Oh, Smoke and Shadows. I'm sorry. No, it's two volumes from now. Okay, wait. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't know what Smoke and Shadows is going to be about. Two volumes from now is North and South, and we have already gotten our indication in this book what we're going to be dealing with because we meet someone from the Southern Water Tribe who indicates what a mess the Southern Water Tribe is right now after the war. Right. And we are going to get all the backstory we've gotten in war for the Northern Southern Civil War. In fact, my prediction is when we get to North and, North and South, watching season two of Korra, we're going to like it more. That's just going to be my prediction. Because GLY is writing it, and he's going to do a great job, and he has respect for what's already there. And he's not one of those write-something-away kind of writers. He's one of those enhance-what's-already-there-in-canon right. kind of people. Yeah. And he's going to look at season two, and he's going to go, how can I fill in the gaps? And that is exactly what he did in this volume. So I'm all in for North and South. Smoke and Shadows, I don't know what it is, but who cares? Because it's going to be great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, before this episode's over, I'm going to get at least Arlo's predictions on what the fuck Smoke and Shadow is going to be. But uh, anyways, we'll get there. So, so let's – okay. So let's, let's – I want to talk about um, the, the setup of this episode. Of this episode. God, episode. Jeez. This book. Um, because it's really interesting. We get – it's very focused on the Air Acolytes, and it's focused on – a air nomad um ritual like a like a festival holiday right and there's some really interesting stuff right out of the beginning of ang celebrating a holiday whose origins and meanings he does not understand in any way yes and i I feel like that says something let's talk about what that says (laughs) first first of all i love the fact that the reason he doesn't know anything about it is because uh you know, our our beloved monk Gyatso actually encouraged him back in the day to goof off and play rather than study all the time. Aang was fly, flying kites and not paying attention to the festival. Right. And yeah, so I I loved this personally. I'm I'm wondering how you all felt about this, but I I found the the approach of Aang. This is an actually you know what it is. Aang holding on to the past has been a recurring theme throughout Avatar mm-hmm. and this show. I somehow this volume found a new way of like a not like a brand new, but like a an interesting angle to approach Aang's inability to let go of the past, even though the past is something he doesn't even didn't even live in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I like this to find a new approach to it. Is that, is that how it read to you guys? Because that's kind of how I that's something I really liked about this. Uh, Yeah, I would say so, because on the show, whenever he, you know, was confronted with something like this, he it it just seemed that he had a sort of authoritative knowledge of of what was of what aspect of 
uh, Air Nomad culture was being defiled. And because he was the hero of the show, I just sort of, you know, went with that. I assumed, you know, he, he w- was was right to be outraged about uh, the lack of respect for his culture. But I like that in The Rift, we find that much like people who celebrate, you know, many uh, holidays today, uh, d- he doesn't understand its origin. And it, it really is just a tradition in the simplest way for him. It's something that he did when he was younger and thinks that people should continue to do, even though it's law, it's literally lost all meaning for anyone who's currently alive. And and how great is Toph's reaction? Toph's flashback sequence of this is just how it's done. Yeah. Was incisive. It was incisive. I love that. This is one of my favorite sequences of the book. The fact that she, it, it, it's kind of a trigger phrase that Aang says that, that, uh, you know, makes her look back on all the stuff. And then it, it was painful to watch the, the rift, uh, sort of grow between the two of them, especially by the end. There's, there's a moment towards the end when they're getting ready to face off. And my, my notes are basically this, this seems really intense. Like this is almost a little, a little too far for me. The, the aggression between the two of these characters, but I turned the page and it was immediately dealt with. So, but I, I also really like that these books um, are dealing with uh, con- like genuine conflicts between Aang and his friends. Sure. Zuko wasn't always a friend. So there, there has been conflict between them in the past, but you know, in, in the promise he was faced with the, with the very real uh, possibility of having to kill Zuko. Which was all, which I think you know went went further than anything on the show, and now he's being confronted with uh, you know a, a difference of opinion with Toph. So I like that these books are showing that one of the many difficult things about progress is that it has a way of uh, dividing even you know like-minded people. Um, yeah, progress. So the. <sighs> This story in particular puts a pretty fine point on the whole idea of progress and how it comes at a cost, um, specifically a cost to, you know, our idea of the past, our experience of the past. Um, Aang struggles to balance the his past, his particular past, with the changes that are necessary that they're going to have to do to move forward into the future. Um, and also the, the problems that integrating multiple, multiple cultures and ideologies uh, bring about. But... Um, Watching him deal with stuff like this uh, in the promise and now this, uh, how do we think he's doing? Like how uh, how do we think he's managing the whole uh, "I'm the Avatar, I have to balance stuff" kind of thing? Is this? Um, do we imagine that what he's doing now? Can we see the groundwork for the world of the Legend of Korra being set by the decisions that Aang is making here? You can see that world building, but in a lot of ways, I feel like it's in spite of Aang, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. And not in like a really – Aang is not making terrible decisions, but Aang at this point is kind of a shitty avatar. I, I'm wondering if and, – and this is a difficult question to ask since we have two more full seasons of another avatar series that we still have to get through. But it almost feels like uh, the, the world of Avatar is outgrowing the need for an avatar. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of forming itself in a new way. And 
the the big accomplishment of this world, Yudao, which is going to become Republic City, is something that Aang actively resisted. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the most part, his his role in this story, his active role in this story, uh, the only thing that he does that uh, as the avatar that other people couldn't, you know, perhaps couldn't have done is face down uh, the, the big kaiju uh, general, Old Iron. Um, even that, though, I think Toph and her metal benders did a pretty good job. But uh, we're entering a world, or it feels like at least right here, we're entering a world where uh, the diplomatic nature of the Avatar is more important than the sort of uh, mystical, powerful nature of the Avatar. And Aang is still, at this point, he's, I don't know, 14, 15? We're not, not sure what his age is, but... Um, yeah, I just... I. I it feels he still feels awkward in the story for me. I mean, in a good way, it feels like his role in the world is awkward. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, I think, I think by the end of this story, given the actions that he has to undergo at the end of this story, I think more than, more than in the previous two stories, he ends closer to being able to, you know, be the voice of change in the world, you know, to, to be, uh, to define that balance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He, the thing I think is interesting is, and I, I like the way that, um, Gene is writing him because he approaches Aang as someone who is genuinely interested in making the world a more peaceful and wonderful place. Aang has his heart in the right place, but, the the nature of Aang is that he was pulled out of his world. The reason we had the Avatar at this moment instead of at the beginning was because Aang got frozen mm -hmm. for a very, very long time. And so Aang is stuck in a world that no longer exists. There's a century of awful things that happened in between then and now. And though Aang and, – and honestly, Aang never had to confront it during his build-up to facing Ozai because no one wanted anything more than for Ozai to be taken down. But – now that Ozai is gone, Aang is not someone who understands the way the world is right now. And his, I don't want to say nostalgia because that maybe has the wrong intention, even though it's the right word, I think, for the world that is gone. His inability to let that go means that he's constantly trying to impose the way the world was on the way the world is now. And it is causing problems every time it happens. Yeah. He... he so there's an episode of Deep Space Nine. I don't know if any of you watched Deep Space Nine out I there. I did. There's this, so the, the, one of the main plot points of Deep Space Nine is that the the wormhole aliens, who the Bajorans see as gods, the um, oracles, is that what they are? I think so, yeah. Uh, the oracles. And they, at one point, they they, they believe Sisko is the emissary because he came out of the wormhole. And they're like, oh, okay, he's the emissary. And then someone who went to the wormhole before him comes out after because these aliens have no some concept of time. And they real and Cisco is so happy to lay down the burden of emissary. He's like, no, this guy's clearly the emissary. And because he's been gone for like a century and a half, he proceeds to start implementing things like, well, there was a Bajoran caste system back then. So clearly things are bad because the caste system isn't there. So let me start doing stuff. So he starts implementing all these things from the past. And it leads to a major situation where Cisco ends up having to take like more forcefully take back the role of emissary because it's this guy's wrong for it. But that is sort of what's going on here. I think it's really it's kind of the same thing of you have someone who is meant to be guiding the world 
who doesn't know what the world is. Mm-hmm. And if not for his friends, would be making endlessly bad decisions about everything. Because this is another one. He wants to tear down this factory. And this factory is a good idea. Yeah. It's the Earth Nation and Fire Nation working together on a factory. It's not. There's nothing bad with it. Although it's not really till the end of the book. I mean, it, we could have intuited that. We could have read between the lines and figured that out. Um, and it's easy to imagine someone saying that earlier in the book. But they don't actually say it in the book until near the end, uh, where they explicitly lay out, lay out the fact that, you know, this isn't just, um, you know, to... This is about uniting. This is a symbol for two nations actually working together uh, to build something together. And uh, yeah, but anyways, uh, on the on the maybe one of the reasons I feel like Aang is so awkward and it's I don't feel like it's addressed in this book explicitly. But Aang, for the majority of the television series was he was a 12 year old kid and much of his time was spent he was trying to continue being a child the whole reason he ended up frozen in the ice in the first place is he was running away from his responsibilities the avatar so he was a 12 year old kid and much of the time he was trying to be playful and trying to be goofy whereas the uh his companions uh katara and sokka they both had to grow up very quickly um and even Toph, who's the youngest of the group, she had a she has a maturity about her um, that Aang has, I, I don't think, ever had. Um, and now he's in a place where it's ironic that in a storyline that was all about a you know a building war and and we're leading up to uh, you know a, <clears throat> a death match between Aang and Ozai, he there was more room for him to be playful and and you know fun loving even back then and now that the war is over uh, it seems like he has to be much more staid and serious than he was even back then along those lines is is is, i actually agree with you and i and i did 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 you feel like the artwork the character design on ang changed slightly for this book yes i feel like he's tall i feel like he and possibly tough but certainly he uh looks taller maybe yeah yeah, I think so. a, little, a little older, a little older. Yeah. I'm not sure what the time frame. Well, it can't be that long because at the beginning, Iroh is talking about how um, Zuko and Ursa are coming back to the capital soon. So, I mean, it's we're not talking a matter of years or anything here. It's maybe weeks or months between books. But anyways, yeah, I did notice I felt like the, the character design, particularly on Aang and maybe a little bit on Toph. Seems different. Ang 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 is hitting puberty. <laughs> so is Toph, oh, clearly. Man. Oh, I love so I love that Gene is taking full force into Toph's string of lovers. Like <laughs> it is starting right now. I love that. I mean like I unironically one hundred percent love that Toph just sort of like picked up dudes and dropped them, which is like absolutely Toph. Like that is hundred percent Toph. Yeah. And this is we get we get the first one. Yeah, yeah. There he is. This, this poor dude well, is so, gonna ride the roller coaster that is Toph, who doesn't give a shit. Well, so let's talk about uh, Toph's story here a little bit. Um, did either of you? How did you each react when you turned the page, or did you see this coming when you turned the page and uh, Toph confronted, like, was face to face with what's his name, Lau? Yeah, yeah. I, I did not see this coming. Did you see this coming, Arlo? 
No, I didn't, uh, because I hadn't really thought about it. I knew that was a loose thread from the original series that she never, you know, reconnected with her parents. But unlike the thing with Zuko and his mom, it didn't seem like a huge deal. So I, I was not expecting it to be revisited here. Well, uh, how'd you feel about it, about the way it played out? And the fact that uh, by the end of this, it looks like, uh, I guess his name is Lao Beifong. Uh, Toph's father appears to be uh, one of the sort of movers and shakers in what I guess is going to become Republic City. I love I, this. Yeah. How did you feel? I'm sorry, you were going. I don't want to talk over you. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, I think it was great. I think it was really well done. I think it was very... Uh, uh, Gene Lu and Yang's handling of it was very nuanced. Um, you know, it starts off with Lao just disavowing Toph entirely, saying he doesn't know who she is and that she's lying, um, to eventually, you know, accepting his role in um, holding back uh, who Toph is as a person. And th- there's that moment at the end where, um, you know, he he apologizes, you know, for, for not thinking she can handle things. And then she has that amazing moment where she's like, you know, you, you were, you were always wrong, dad. Uh, you know, I, I'm, my name is, you know, Toph Beifong and I'm the greatest earthbender in the world. And just, she, she has such amazing self-confidence that she knows she can handle anything that gets thrown at her. And, you know, he never appreciated that in her, never, never saw that in her and didn't want to see that in her. And so that he gets to a place where he can accept that and realize that he has been wrong about her and about so many things, um, I think is great. Considering how hot-headed and impulsive Toph has always been uh, the entire time we've known her, um, her handling of her father in this story, I think, is uh, probably the most uh, mature and restrained that we've seen her, which is surprising. You'd think... Uh, you know, you'd think of any situation being able to push Toph like over the top to plant her rage needle in the red or whatever would be her her father showing up and talking down to her again, or certainly you know disavowing her and saying you're not my daughter. But um, I, I love the fact that she she certainly gets angry, but you know she doesn't throw tantrums or or whatever. I feel like she has a very uh, you know, responsible and appropriate reaction to meeting her father and confronting him and, and speaking to him like the adult that she pretty much is, despite the fact that she's 13. Yeah, it was, it, I thought it really worked. I mean, I, I, you know, you back up far enough and it is an absolutely rote plot line mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, like there's not a lot happening here on the, on the surface that we haven't seen before, but it's a good proof that execution is what matters mm-hmm. in narrative. And the, when you get to the moment when he, the, you get two great moments, you get the moment when Toph tells him off and he, she's like, and he just turns around and doesn't say anything to her. Like when she confronts him in the office and then um, Sokka interrupts them. So we don't get the rest of the conversation. And then we get the moment you were talking about where he finally opens up to her and she, gives her a response, which is very powerful. It's a really powerful moment. And it's a it's a good reminder of how much writing matters and execution matters when you're telling a story. You can be telling something that is 
a story we have seen 10,000 times before and the details of someone's individual execution make it unique Mm -hmm. and thus powerful. So I, I really loved it, even though it's not like it said anything new about the tortured parent child relationship when a child doesn't do what a parent wants. Yeah. But I think there are little details in it that were interesting. Like the fact that, uh, her parents, I mean, they don't use the D word, but her parents apparently got divorced over yeah. the Toff situation. Yeah. That's, I agree. No, I, I it's really, that's what I mean about execution. Those details are what, what make it great. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm behind you. That's, that was not a like, Oh, it was bad. It's those, um, Gene Lin Yang obviously strongly thought through what this was going to be. Mm-hmm. And I think he nailed it. And I, I actually think uh, he actually did a better job of the parent child thing with this than he did with Zuko's mom. And he did a good job with Zuko's mom. So that's not me knocking it. Yeah. But I think he, I think he actually found some real gold in this. I, I, I guess I agree with that. I, I, I still feel like trying to rationalize or defend the, the Ursa storyline. Um, you know, maybe, and I think we talked about this when we talked about, uh, the, the search that one of the difficulties of that storyline is that that was a mystery that we have all wanted answered. Like people have been clamoring for those answers. And so it's impossible to give us answers that are going to be a hundred percent satisfying when those are the questions we've had this whole time. Whereas this, the, the Toff family situation, like Arlo said, you know, that, that was a dangling story thread that was left out there, but not one that we really necessarily thought was ever going to be resolved. Certainly not one that anybody was clamoring for. So I feel like maybe there's a little more leeway in this story than there was with Zuko and Ursa. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So on the subject of families and uh, children, um, Oh, wait, no, before we go on, I was going to ask, that was my segue into the children of the Aang gang. I was going to ask seeing Toph in this and uh, the relationship that she has with her family or actually her father. We don't know what her relationship with her mother would be at this point, but watching her in this and her family situation and the way that she deals with her quote unquote kids, her students at the metal bending uh, Institute, uh, can we posit anything like, does this give us any ideas about what it must be like for Lynn Beifong to be the actual daughter of Toph? I think it does a little bit. I mean, like you said, we get to see how she treats her, uh, her lily livers, uh, how, how rigorously she puts them through these insane, uh, training exercises. Um, so I, I think Lynn definitely grew up with a lot of that, uh, not a lot of coddling, but at the same time, Toph, you know, has l- learned lessons from how she was brought up. So she she doesn't, you know, I, I think not coddling can be can be bad in a way. Like if she if she be, goes too far and is like a little too extreme uh, with with uh, training or child rearing or, or whatever. Um, but at the same time, she's not going to ask her daughter to hold back on her potential right you know what i think is interesting about this is we actually get 
some interesting fuel for the various ways that um, Aang's children versus Toph's children turned out. Mm-hmm. And Toph's children are obviously the product of a mother who is like, you do you. <laughs> like, that is it. Like, that is the entirety of Toph's parenting style is like, be your best. Do go learn good shit, but like, hey, I'm not gonna be around if you you know if you if you don't like what I'm saying, then whatever, go do your own thing, man. I don't care. And there's obviously some like tension there with like Lynn, and Lynn obviously is self-driven in a in a really like dangerous way mm-hmm. as a result. Whereas Aang, his ties to the past obviously never went away because he grossly favored Tenzin. Over his other children. Yeah, I specifically wanted. Okay, so in the in the big final showdown between Aang and and General Old Iron, um, when he defeats uh, General the General uh, by blasting a hole through his chest, um, he's horrified. Aang is horrified at that, and he's he's pretty much horrified and traumatized by that whole situation where the general. Uh, just gives up and 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 admits, you know, you humans have changed the world. There's no place for us in the in this world anymore. And Aang's like, no, 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 I'm 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 the bridge. I have to balance. I'm the bridge between us. Please don't go or whatever. So, I, do we think that that speaks to what we know of Tenzin's personality? Tenzin, what we just got done watching in book two of Korra was Tenzin struggling to come to terms with the fact that, I mean, he ha- he's had this drive to live up to his father's spiritual expectations, apparently his whole life. And he's just now learning to let that go. So, I mean, do we kind of see the groundwork of that being laid here with, with Aang really being upset at the notion that maybe spirits don't have a place in the world anymore? That's um, I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't really thought about that. Um, I guess it makes sense. I mean, we do, um, we, we we've known throughout the whole series that Aang is very you know spiritually connected, um, but I guess seeing like his real how genuinely upset he is um, at what he's done to, uh, to to General Old Iron, um, I think maybe maybe we do see the groundwork being laid there. I think I think it makes sense given what we know of Aang that you know, I'm not saying he didn't love his other kids, but the fact that he he favors Tenzin because he sees a way to, um, you know, and it it actually turns out that he's wrong, you know, in mm-hmm. the long run, as he's been wrong, you know, on on almost everything to do with the past. Um, but in Tenzin, he sees a chance to, you know, uh, rebuild the you know the the relationship the Air Nomads had with uh, with the spirits and everything to continue that tradition in the present. And you know, like I said, he's wrong. But I, I, I can see the groundwork being laid for that. Um. All right. So one thing I, I, I'm afraid we're not going to talk about, because it's very much in the background, but there's a lot of pretty phenomenal Sokka stuff. And I want to start us <laughs> at, there's a comment about him liking, uh, I can't remember the name of the artist who did Disney Ducks and liking to put comic bits yeah, 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 in yeah. the background. Uh-huh. And there's a bit where Sok, where like it's set up earlier, where where um, Katara wants some of Sokka's like meat kebab mm-hmm. things, yeah. and he's like, nope. And then in the background, while Aang's having like a more serious conversation, Katara with water bending grabs the meat kebab from Sokka mm-hmm. and eats it. And there's a lot of really great stuff in the background happening with Sokka, but that was since uh, GL. Oh, I called that out 
that was one that really stuck out to me. Yeah, there's Don also... Rosa. Don yeah. Rosa, yes, thank you. Thank you. Uh, there's also, yeah, that's on page 51, by the way, where that happens. There's also, it, it's a little bit less in the background because he's got dialogue, but there's the whole bit with the the forklift, with him driving the forklift around in the background. Um, oh, man, Sokka's, like, unbridled glee at getting to drive the <laughs> forklift around and how terrible he is at driving the forklift around mm-hmm. was so beautiful. <laughs> and then the, toward the end where, you know, they, they have to get in the forklift for an important plot reason. And uh, uh, Sokka asks Satoru if he can drive. And Satoru's just like, no. no. <laughs> it, um, it's, it's really, and actually, you know, this is, I wanted to call it out partially because the moment when you start um, feeling comfortable enough with, with characters to, like, start dropping jokes in the margins is the point at which you are obviously really into the story. Mm-hmm. you're writing and i think that this volume um that sort of marks a moment where genial and yang is obviously a hundred percent into this you know like he was always writing really great stuff and it was all fantastic but the point when you know that you can just jam a katara Sokka joke into the background is the point when you are these you're no longer writing someone else's characters they are now your characters too and i think this book marks that as yeah. a result. Um, so how do we feel about the end of the story? I mean, I like it. Is there something specific you're, um, you're bringing yourself to ask about there? Uh, I'm, no, just, uh, I mean, we, in we finish on another, uh, actually I did. Well, we'll talk about that when we talk about the art. Um, uh, just that we finish on another Kaiju battle, but I feel like it's the, this Kaiju Kaiju battle is much more satisfying. Um, it's and, pretty short too. It's pretty short. Well, so was the other one actually. The one in Korra was pretty short too. But well, there were there were like multiple beats to that fight of like Korra fighting and then um, Deus Ex Genora showing up, right? And then the battle continuing. Whereas this is pretty much there's like a a brief moment where Kaiju Mysterio is battling General Old Iron, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and then it's pretty much over after that. It looks like Mysterio, right? It's like the thing with Mysterio's head. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, Yeah, I don't know. But but it's pretty fast. It's cool. It's cool as shit. I love it, but it's pretty fast. uh, I liked the teamwork involved in it, of course. I mean, we had to find a way to sort of close the rift um, between Toph and Aang and having them, you know, combine their forces there at the end to defeat general old iron was great oh my god i was just flipping the pages here and there's a scene where general old iron is actually wiping a tear out of his eye and when he realizes that um he's saying uh, my agreement with your predecessor only staved off the inevitable there is no longer a place for spirits in this world yeah and i love there's that moment where toff gives ang the the perfect shot like the only way to defeat this guy is to is to to go for like the the the, the coup de gras mm-hmm. here, and I, I've I've given you it's wide open for you, and Aang still hesitates because he just cannot. You know, there's that moment uh, at the end of the story where um, he just looks completely defeated, and he tells Katara something like, you know, I I, I hate destroying things. Yeah. Um. So he hesitates, but in the end, he realizes he has to go for it. Um. And yeah, and then he's he's genuinely. It's it's not a moment of triumph when it happens. It's a it's it's bittersweet because yes, he defeated this spirit that was going to raise an entire town, 
but at the same time, he just he he believes he's killed a spirit. Uh, but of course, as we find out, you know, spirits don't die; they just take on new forms. Though there there is that moment where he he asks um, General Old Iron, he's like, you know, my girlfriend's like one of the greatest healers in the world. Um, let her look at your wounds. And even then, I was like, Ang, dude, like Katara, Katara can't heal spirits. Yeah, I'm they're, not sure Katara can spirits. <laughs> Uh, who knows what Katara could do? She's the best. So is is, is Ang a bit of a hypocrite here? I mean, Ang five minutes before he is refusing to punch a hole in this giant kaiju spirit's chest, he's like, "I'm gonna raise this town to the ground. I'm gonna destroy it. No problem. I'm gonna just knock this town down, and get everyone out because all your livelihoods are going the fuck away." Well, but that's where that was the moment where uh, that Arlo was referring to when he. Uh, when he tells Katara, I hate destroying things. It's when he figures out that he's going to have, in order to stop this giant well, that's right, from yeah. coming, he's going to have to wipe this town out. And he does not want to do that. Even though he, but, even though, you know, throughout the story, he's wanted this town gone, but uh, he doesn't want to do it this way. But that's what I mean. He's kind of full of shit because from the moment he sees this refinery, what he wants to do is kick everyone out and burn to the ground. I mean, he doesn't want to like, physically like punch everyone out of the town and then light everything on fire. But from the moment he gets to this town, what he wants to do is convince everyone to leave and tear the town down. That's what he wants. He's one of that from the moment he showed up. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he doesn't state that explicitly. And if you were, if you were to say that to his face, he'd probably deny that that was what he wanted. But yeah, thematically he's, he does not want the town there. So, but I don't know. I, I feel like that's part. That's a, a realistic complexity to the character of Aang. That for the for the most part throughout this story, he wants the town. You know, at least metaphorically, he wants this town wiped off the face of the map. And then when it comes down to what he actually has to do to save these people's lives, is to lives is to forcefully destroy this town. It becomes a whole other issue to him. I don't know. Well, I like that. I like. That I, I think. I think the the reason I think there's a question there of like, what does Aang value more? Does he value uh, this town and the progress it's made and the in the the livelihoods of these people that it represents, or does he value um, the the spirit world more? Even if uh, the spirit is is you know arguably wrong headed as General Old Iron is, and I think that's the question he has to answer, and ultimately he comes down on the side of you know taking out the spirit instead of standing in the way of what these people's lives have become and how they've transformed the world. But I think, I think that's a realistic question uh, for, I think that's a question at the heart of his character. You know, what does he value more in having to, having to make that decision? So I, I think, uh, I think he is kind of a hypocrite. I think you're right. But I, I like Paul, I appreciate that about his character. For what it's worth, I think it's neither that he appreciates more. What he appreciates the most is tradition. And his defense of the spirit is as much about tradition than anything else. He is right. supposed to defend the spirit. It's not even that he has a real understanding of why to value spirits, which is something that I think Korra is actually coming to the understanding of well beyond what Aang ever understood. And Aang is not invested in either world. And that's actually why he's doing a terrible job as an avatar on a lot of levels is because what he thinks at his core that the world needs is to return to traditions. 
And over and over again, that's what he's facing, is that the world can never return to those traditions, but he does not understand a world without them. And that's what's, that's what's crushing him as an avatar right now. Uh, and hence, yeah. and hence, his youngest son goes on to um, rebuild the air nomad nation and live on an on an island like a monk for his whole life. Yeah, yeah. there there's a moment. Uh, uh, let's see, toward the very beginning of the story, uh, where they're at the ceremony uh, unveiling the new coalition government, which would become the, eventually become the United Republic Council. Um, and I'm not sure if we've ever seen Aang wear like ceremonial garb before. We may have, um, but that's like it's like Baby Tenzin right there. Mm-hmm. That was yeah. I can't remember if we've seen that exact outfit, but yeah, in uh, at, at the end of the TV series, you know, in the right. final episode of the TV series, he was wearing that, and then in the promise, we saw him wear a little bit of it, but. Um, yeah, I've well, always I, I've I've always loved his more ceremonial, uh, you know, clothing. And, and I think I think you know if we if we did see him wear it in the previous if, if he was wearing it in the promise, I think we read that before we we started watching Korra. Yeah. So I think this is the first time I've seen him in this since you know knowing who Tenzin is, and I think that's a really cool touch. Um, all right. The thing I said that we could wait till we get to the artwork to talk about. Well, I'm. I want to use. I'll use it to actually segue into talking about the art. Uh, let's talk about the story, sort of the backstory of uh, Lady Lady Tian Shai. Um, yeah. Who is the mysterious statue in the town that Ang doesn't know who the hell it is? Um, what do you think about that story? How, how did that story play for you? I thought it was awesome. I loved that. Yeah. I loved the flashback within a flashback. That was some Neil Gaiman shit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I loved it. Um, Especially the art, like the change in artwork and everything. Like yeah, page one thirty six. Oh man, it's so great. I I kind of love that. Uh, is it is a girl hero who's like we don't think we really got it right with the artwork or the brushstroke artwork. Like, yeah. they, they did not it, seem it, it's, enthused it's about their. It is. It's amazing. It's and I love that they're like they're they're not even like self-deprecating about it. They're just sort of like I don't think we did it. Well, if, if you actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to mention almost all of their their footnotes, almost all of their annotations in this book are like, yeah, we really wish we could have done this a different way. Yeah, like like they're they're so like I almost like want to like I wish I could like check in with them, and be like, hey, uh, are you okay? Like. <laughs> Like you, you're you're doing great work. You don't have to be so down on yourself. You you're you're awesome. They, yeah, they downplay themselves. They're self-deprecating uh, most of the time. But or, or like any time they talk about General Old Iron, they're like, we really love drawing this scene, but oh, it was we it, it was so hard. It was so hard to do this. Yeah. Uh, the the actual quote here about the the flashback within a flashback uh, says we made a slight change to our art style. We tried to make it look like traditional Asian brush painting, but we really had a hard time. Like, I feel really bad for Guri hero after all of this. Like they need, like, it's fun. It's ironic that I, I am all people of saying this, but uh, you like some self-confidence you guys. Well, they're doing Gwenpool. Believe now, in so yourself. They re- they really need some. self-confidence. I'm sorry. I have not read Gwenpool. I shouldn't speak. Um, 
All right. Well, so let's talk about the art in general then. Uh, obviously, we've had nothing but glowing praise for Guri Hero uh, for the previous two volumes. Anything in this volume change our opinions, lower or elevate it? Do we think they did? Are they getting better with every single volume? Clearly, at this point, they're just coasting. No, I'm I'm kidding. They're 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 fantastic. I I don't think any particular design stood out to me as much as the giant spirit right. um, in uh, the search did. But I mean, that's not a criticism. I mean, that their their art at this point is just it's so it's so fluid and it's so uh, detailed and dynamic. I just I absolutely love it. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I. So what I would say is I think that there is a slight improvement which comes entirely with confidence. I don't think their art quality is so much better as they clearly – I was made a comment before about how it's clearly it's clear that Gene has internalized these characters mm-hmm. at this point, that they are his characters as much as anyone. I think that Gurahiro has the same feeling by this point. The artwork is smooth. The poses are great. There's a moment where they discuss how difficult it was to get – um, Toph's pose correct for when she's holding up the like the, the the earth yeah and but it's clear where they landed on it is just an amazing there's actually multiple amazing Toph poses agree in this that are just a hundred percent Toph and I think that this is I think this is the volume where both the writer and the artists just learned who their their um their people were you know what I mean like they didn't think this got exactly who these people were. Yeah, uh, I actually that that scene you were just referencing is on page one fifty two, and I I wanted to call that out specifically because my note for this I wrote down page one fifty two can't help but imagine this splash is an homage to the cover of Secret Wars number four from nineteen eighty four, which featured for those youngsters in the audience featured uh, the the Hulk holding up it was basically this exact shot the hulk holding up an entire mountain while the rest of the um marvel superheroes were cowering behind him uh and then so i i made that note and then my following note is uh and there on page 158 is the footnote confirming my secret wars number four suspicion because they uh i think it's gene yeah yeah that specifically mentions that as an influence of that wow that's that that's amazing like i actually like i'm familiar with secret wars i i've read secret wars i i didn't remember that cover so that's that's awesome that you got that shout out uh honestly like i uh <laughs> the the marvel connection i made was it just reminded me of the, like, the way the issue ended uh, on that cliffhanger it reminded me of that issue of uh that classic issue of the amazing spider-man where he's holding up like the, yes. the the, the giant like machinery or, or whatever. Oh yeah, that, that's right. I forgot about that one. That's In the great. sewers with the water splashing around him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it reminded me of. But no, that's awesome that you got the actual reference that was being made. <laughs> I, I've always loved that cover. So. And, and I love Gene's. Uh, I like how we're just on a first name basis with him at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love Gene's reasoning. Surely, if the Hulk can do something like that. <laughs> Soaking tough. Like that's so. It's so perfect. It's so perfect. Yeah. It's so right. Okay. I want. I've been. I've been using Gene the whole time. So the first name thing is my my doing. I do. I want to. So the reason I'm doing it is that the initials in the book sort of like he has G L Y and like so as soon as it happens I feel like it's either G L Y I guess it's either his whole name or Gene I don't know like it just it it's coming off that way to me and I just feel like it's the right way. 
I'm not so, familiar so with I, I like how like this feels like right to me. So your only <laughs> just feels right to you. <laughs> so I like how your only options are like G O Y or G, not like you know, Yang or. Well, yeah, the G is there. Like, I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels like the last name is not what's going in there. It's either the full name or one or one name is basically what you get out of that. And Yang doesn't feel right. It feels like Gene. I don't know. Maybe it's just that I feel so comfortable with his writing that I just feel like he's Gene. Like, I would want to be like, Gene, let's get a beer because you're the most amazing person. We'll, and we'll, I, want, I want to drink with you right now. We'll get him on the podcast. He'll be here sooner or later. It'll be like, I was going to do it, except that fucking asshole keeps calling me Gene like he knows me. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's Mr. I don't know why it's, it's Mr. It's just, Yang, it's just, please. It's just, it's, I would call, if he wanted me to call Mr. Yang, I would call him Mr. Yang. But it, it, it definitely, I don't know, looking at it, it just feels like, it feels like the right way is to refer to him as Gene. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe because it's not like, I don't know, at no point do I feel like anyone else is calling him Yang. So Mr. <laughs> Mr. Yang, Mr. Yang sounds like an eighties Sylvester Stallone villain. <laughs> yeah. And I would, and I would, thing is I would never call anyone, any writer. I would not call Neil Gaiman, Mr. Gaiman. Right. You know, I may call him Gaiman, but I might also call him Neil. I met the guy. He was pretty nice. He called me a brother writer. That was pretty sweet. Wow. Holy shit. That's awesome. That was that was that was so I feel like I can call him Neil. That, that honestly, that gives me the ability to call any writer everywhere, <laughs> whatever name I want. That's You're, actually what I took away from that experience. You you were in. A... Well, I guess all three of us are in the fraternity of writers, so we can call other writers. Uh, we know the secret handshake. We can call other writers by their first name. Yep, you have you have written something, and therefore you can just you can just <laughs> call another writer whatever the fuck you want. Awesome, so I love means, it. There you awesome. go, Gene. I love it. Uh, by the way, to me, uh, Mr. Yang sounds like per- perhaps a character in a Sylvester Stallone movie, but one that would have been played by Joel Gray. <laughs> uh, so, wow. I mean, we're, we're really upping the racism of the Sylvester Stallone movie. <laughs> we went from Asian villain to white guy playing an Asian character. Well, that's Remo because, Williams. The adventure begins. That's because friend. I made Arlo suffer through Remo Williams. That's why. He will never get. Oh, back. was Joel was Joel Gray playing an an Asian he, character? In- he was. He wasn't actually the the weirdest thing about it. It's obviously very racist that they would ever do that, but he's actually really good. It was like nominated for awards. I loved it. I hey, loved hey, it. so it was fucking Mickey Rooney in. Well, Definitely. Mickey Rooney was just awful completely. But <laughs> wow, right. I'm watching a video. This is horrible. I thank you, everyone. I want you all to note that I was forced to watch the scenes because of these two. Nobody forced you to watch anything, Eric. <laughs> I want to know. Or, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, brother Eric, or whatever the fuck I'm supposed <laughs> to call you now. <laughs> oh man! All right. Um, okay. Anyways, I'm gonna go back to what I was saying before, which is Gene Lun Wang is amazing, and <laughs> <laughs> um, getting us out of this death spiral. Uh, I, I, one thing we haven't talked about as far as this is concerned is so at the end of this, or I, I think it was during the search that uh, Aang lost connection with his past lives. Yes, I did want to bring this up. Thank you. Yeah, and so he regains that connection here. Um, he, he sees Avatar Yangchen, who says that, you know, the, the reason that she is able to appear to him is because you know, him reenacting the, the tradition serves as a temporary conduit because it's like a shared experience, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is an interesting concept. 
And then he's able to reconnect his past lives because he earthbends a new metal. Yeah, so this takes us back. I want to give both of you, I don't remember which one of you talked me off the ledge on this the last time, maybe Eric, but I, I spoke about this previously when he shattered that whole Roku uh, medallion or whatever. And my problem with that was this is the first time we've ever seen him have to use like his past lives rosary beads or whatever in order to get in touch with his past lives. So it just felt to me, it felt odd that uh, it, it was so, it, you know, it was such a powerful moment. It was such a statement that he broke that because he'd spoken to Roku many, many times throughout the television series and never once had the sort of magic rosary beads. Um, and I remember bringing that up and, and one or both of you kind of talked me down and, and, you know, explained how, you know, maybe that makes sense or whatever. And now I'm right back to feeling like, wh where does this come from? Why are his... Why, why are the prayer medallions such a big deal all of a sudden? Okay, I, I have an answer to this one. Okay. I am the resident headcanoner of this podcast, I realize. <laughs> okay. The resident fan winker? I, hey, let's give me some respect here. <laughs> Fellow writer. So, so here, here is what, here's what's going on, is that Aang, you know, there, whenever you are doing any kind of magic or, or anything of that nature, you have... Um, tools, tricks, whatever you do to do it. And Aang's way of accessing his past lives are these prayer medallions. That is the tool by which he has learned to reliably do it. And there is a chain between, and, and oh my god, I'm, I can't believe I can't remember the, the name of the airbender avatar. This is me not remembering names very well. Yeah, but Yang Chen. She, Yang Chen. So Yang Chen rem reminds him that it's a chain, that the closest ones are the easiest. So he has broken his ability to easily get to the first one and thus broken his ability to work back through it. And it's not a, a failure of the avatar ability and a, a different avatar with a different means of accessing their past lives would not have this problem. But Aang has become, okay, I'm going to go back to no game and here we go. Tools can become the subtlest of traps. I, I feel like this is the exact way that you did this the last time I had a problem with this. There we go. I can always come back to no game and make, and make sense of it, but that's what it is. His tools become the subtlest of traps, and he the only way of getting back was that, and he he attacked it in the wrong way. He burned the medallion for Roku mm -hmm. instead of just moving past the advice he didn't want. Anymore. Okay, remind me how that plays out in this. I, I remember, I just read this earlier today. I remember him crafting a new Roku medallion, but does that... How does it end? Does that solve the problem for him? Because well, I... he has a conversation with Roku where he really explicitly deals with the fact that Roku's like, look, I'm from your past. I have wisdom, but this is your life. Right. Okay. And, and so it is Aang. I, my read on that was that Aang was accepting that he could listen to what Roku has to say and not accept it. So what, here's what I hope is kind of happening uh, maybe between panels or behind the scenes uh, as we're reading these stories that Aang is gradually learning to let go of the past. I mean, that's kind of explicitly what his, his story is at the moment. He needs to move on. Um, and in the process of doing that, he's going to 
just gradually move away from relying on his past lives. So whereas in Legend of Korra, we just had this this big, uh, you know, terrible uh, moment where she is severed from her avatarness and and loses the connection to her past lives. And, you know, we commented how that didn't necessarily feel as weighty as maybe the show wanted us to think. Um, here, what I kind of feel like is happening or what I kind of hope is happening is that Aang is just going to gradually, because this ends with him throwing, basically they throw a new party with brand new traditions, kites with strings and a loud parade instead of a quiet procession and so on and so forth. He's learning new ways and maybe he's just sort of moving away from the need to even speak to his past lives. Which is interesting because is didn't Korra lose the ability to connect with her past lives after what she went through at the end of book two? Yeah, she didn't lose the ability. the The chain of Avatar, like she lost the connection to her past lives. Period. It's not the ability. The Avatar is right. now it is a new cycle for the Avatar. Yeah, at this point, that okay. the the connection to her reincarnations is just gone. For all Avatars in the future, too, it's gone. It's yeah, gone, she's, gone. She she is uh she's Avatar number one for the for whatever this new cycle is. So sort of the way, so if Aang is progressing out of a need to rely on his past lives, I think Korra, you know, completes that by, you know, breaking free from it entirely. Right. Against her will, but yes. Well, right, right. Um, Although she, I mean, that was kind of her, maybe that's why that didn't feel so weighty to us, because Korra had never really been able to access her past lives, so... And she kind of struggled with that all along. And so taking it away from her entirely kind of felt like, all right, well, big deal. But at any rate, who knows where this is going with Aang? I, what I hope is happening here is that um, Eric, you and I both commented on how the artwork makes it look like maybe Aang is just a little bit taller, maybe a little bit older. So I kind of hope that each one of these books moves. I hope we start moving forward in time a little more. Like I, I want to, I don't necessarily want the next volume to be just a couple weeks after this and so on and so forth. But I, I don't think we're going to get a great jump in time I mean, just they, from the artwork I've seen. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, you're right. Cause they have, I've seen the covers for all of them. So, well, whatever <laughs> I would like, well, uh, you know, as, as we say each time, or as I say, each time we talk about these books, I would not mind if there were, other comics coming out that were the adventures of young avatars. So, I mean, we get a very little, I loved the little bit we got of young Yang Chen when she was first, uh, the full avatar and her first adventure. I want that kind of stuff. I want to see the previous avatars and how they dealt with shit. See, I want to see adult Ang in Republic city. Yes, that too. I, I want all oh. this stuff, but I want Gene to write. All oh yeah. That, I want so. endless. I want it all to be this well written though. Like I don't want it to become as, as, uh, Arlo brought up last week, the Buffy comics. Right. Yeah. Which were not good. And I feel like these are, boy, if these are not the exact opposite of the Buffy comics. Exactly. They really are, yeah. Like, like they, and what's interesting is the Buffy comics started off feeling as good as these. They, they did, yeah. But but they just didn't execute their endgame the same way. And Avatar has just managed to bridge. Maybe having Korra helps a mm-hmm. little bit. I mean, also having Jin Yang helps a, a lot. lot yeah like that helps a lot you have a a 
absolute top level, probably one of the, if you were going to name the top 10 comic writers writing right now, he would probably be in that top 10. I would agree. I, I might even make a case for being in the top five yeah. right now based on what he's doing. But um, you have a really great writer, but he has, he is, his ability to bridge where we were in Avatar and where we're going in Korra is amazing. And that is an underrated talent. The ability to look at continuity, to look at canon, and bridge them in a way that feels like existing canon and not like Dan. He he is the avatar of Avatar. He is the bridge is, between. Yeah. <laughs> he is bridging the 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 old the old the first the first Avatar era and the second Avatar. Right, era. exactly. Um, all right. Two more little things I wanted to call out before I forget, and then we can start winding this down. Uh, specifically about well, this is both art and writing i suppose because uh, it, it could be guri hero or it could have been gene that did this but the sound effect on page 86 anybody know what i'm talking about i gotta look, I gotta look. hold on hold on i'm looking right the now. sound I effect to... on page 86 yes. I, I want everyone to remember we are using the um the annotated um whatever special editions are mm-hmm. so when we're calling out page numbers that's what we're looking at whoosh is that what you're talking about nope above that slide <laughs> Oh, slide. <laughs> Toph, can you hey, create can a, slide a slide beneath their feet? Sure. Slide. Then there's a slide. I love that. I don't know. That's that awesome. I don't, even think I, I don't even think I noticed that there were old style comic sound effects in mm-hmm. this battle all over the place. And I, there's there's a bonk on page 91. I just, I, this didn't even, I think I was just sort of like, re- shing. Oh, these are amazing. How did I not notice these? Smash, <laughs> stomp. Have these, have these been in every single book or is this the first yes. one? I, I, oh think my they, God. I think they have, but these are, I don't remember them being, there's, there's crash, there's crunch. Yeah. I don't remember them being this on the nose, but I like it. Well, the, the, there's also a ton in the, uh, toward the end with general old iron. It's there. How, really? How did you not notice these, Eric? They're, they're all over the place. You know what? I mean, this is, this is the magic of, of, as uh, Scott McLeod would say, sequential art. I think I just read them as sound effects. I don't think that I right. noticed them as words on the page. It just became a part of the effect of the frame. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's what they're supposed to do. Except yeah. for these are great. Of... I mean, there's like a gulp, gulp. These are amazing. <laughs> stop, I, I need stop, to read stop, stop. these again. Yeah, these are great. Wow. Um, okay. And then uh, we didn't even we didn't even mention that uh, our beloved cabbage merchant is back. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Okay. Thank you for bringing up the Cabbage Merchant. I, I actually have a note. I wrote a rare note about the Cabbage Merchant to bring it up. All right. Not only do we get the Cabbage Merchant, but we get the beginnings of Cabbage Corp. Yep. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like I, 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 at first I felt like, like really bringing the Cabbage Merchant back again. Like this joke is getting kind of played out. And then it becomes like his origin story or the, or the Cabbage Corp origin story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, like this is it. this is the genius that is the writing in this. When I was talking about bridging the two series, that he was like, you know what? I want to bring the cabbage merchant back. Okay, that's easy. I can make a my cabbages joke. And I think that the comics needed one my cabbages joke, regardless of whether you think the joke is played out. On the on the total surface of it, these comics would not be Avatar without a my cabbages right joke, without at least one. But he doesn't stop there. He goes, well, there's got to be a cabbage corp in the future, and so he looks at the forklift and goes hey there's something these beautiful machines whatever you call it that glorious yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing absolutely amazing 
That's awesome. I, I'm I'm just, I'm still sad. I, I'm gonna just call myself out here that I did not ever note the Cabbage Merchant the first time I watched Avatar. I came out and into this, I came into this rewatch having zero memory of the Cabbage Merchant, and yeah. it's not like oh, I was reminded of him later. Still, my first watch of Avatar contains no memories. <laughs> That's amazing. Poor Cabbage but, Merchant. My cabbage corp. Uh, page page one nineteen. I just want to single that out as possibly my favorite, uh, like capturing of character voices in this volume. It's the Katara and Sokka when they first enter the mine, and Sokka's got the uses the belt to tie that glowing. Oh uh, yeah, crystal to his forehead. I don't know. It's something about the dialogue between the two of the the two of them. I, I can hear those actors delivering those lines that sounds like it's straight out of the show it's it's great it's a great it's a great moment the katara Sokka stuff in this is just is just phenomenal um this is honestly this book is so good there's so much good stuff in this i mean i feel like there's just so many things we haven't talked about i mean even on the Sokka level like Okay, Sokka gets one of his most glorious moments in this book. And this is the kind of thing, I call this out just to note that there are probably a dozen of these amazing moments scattered about for various characters. When he's fighting the the, the rough rhinos come back, by the way. We didn't mention yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The rough rhinos come back, and he has a moment where he's fighting the bow guy, and they've knocked the bow out of his hands, and he's like, my guess is that you've used, the, you used, you got really good with the bow because you suck at hand-to-hand combat. I don't remember the exact quote, but the quote's that. And he's like, no, I trained with, and then soccer just beats him in another I know, that was beautiful. Yeah. I loved that. What, that a, awesome. what a great, and inspiring Satoru, is that his name? See, mm-hmm. I'm terrible with names. Mm-hmm. Satoru. To, um, Satoru to, to think, to fight smart and him doing something and be like, is that what you meant? And you're like, yep, that's it. Like, go- yeah. glorious soccer moments. Just glorious soccer moments. Soccer's amazing. There's so many small moments like that. that really, and you know what? Maybe we're getting to why this was my favorite of the book so far. Is that it's a it's a solid story. It's not huge. The promise has the most, I'd say, important story of these books so far, and the search has the most rooted in backstory. But I think this one is the one that all the pieces meld. It's the like it's the perfectly balanced stew yeah. of the Avatar comic so far. It doesn't do anything. Anything mind-blowing. There's no moment in this where you're like, wow, this redefines it. Like, the first one has the development of Yudao, which becomes Republic City. And the second one has Zuko's mom. And it doesn't have anything like that. But what it does have is the most perfect balance of Avatar elements, I think, that I've seen in any of these. And as perfect an Avatar balance as you had in any of Avatar, the series. It's a, it's, it matches the perfect balance of the series at its best. So I think yeah. that's probably why I'm such a fan of this. Awesome. All right. Well, my final thought is going to be that I desperately want to see more of young Yang Chen. I mean, she had, uh, she had two flying lemur pets, pick and pack. And she had an amazing master Boma who looks so much like a cross between Iroh and Sokka that it's, <laughs> It's just amazing to me. Nice. About pick and pack, though, a a characteristic uh, footnote from Guri Hero is like, we wish they would have appeared more. <laughs> yeah. Of well, like, like yeah. they're just so they're so downbeat. I feel so bad for them. They do such amazing work. 
Yeah, and they're just like, well, I mean, I guess we, we pulled it off, I guess. <laughs> or, or, or like with Satoru, because um, they say something really interesting. They say Satoru is from the Fire Nation, but since he runs the Earth and Fire refinery, he wears gray to show that he is politically neutral. That did not occur to me, which they could have ended the footnote there. But no, they continue. He looks just a bit too earnest. We would have liked to have designed him with a more unique color scheme. Yeah, they say something about the crane fish, too, because uh, at the end, when uh, Tianhai appears to Aang after it's all over, she takes the form of several crane fish, which I don't know why they're... I guess they've got fish scales. Never mind. I was going to say, they just look like cranes to me. But uh, anyways... That was one of my favorite things. That's uh, that and the fact that uh, uh, General Old Iron, when he quote-unquote dies, he dissolves into just a bunch of spirit lobster or something. Some of the wacky spirit stuff I love. But anyways, they talk about the fact that uh, they wish that they had sort of seeded the whole crane fish better earlier in the story so that when it's revealed later on, it would mean more. They were. Uh, did you feel like our hero was just uncharacteristically down on themselves on the annotations on this one? Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. It, more so than the others. Like I, I do remember remarks like this from the other two, but like almost like like many of their annotations were like that this time. There were. I feel like there were fewer annotations in total in this book yeah. than there have been in the past. So. Uh, yeah, I, generally so. Yeah, but. The, uh, so okay, we, I, I guess we should note to everyone that this is this is our penultimate Avatar: The Last Airbender comic as part of the main line of the, of the Avatar Returns. We only have one more left, provided it comes out when they say it's going to. Right. So we after this, we're going to do uh, Legend of Korra book three, and then between when book three is done, uh, we will do volume four of the comics, uh, which is Smoke and Shadow. Um. And then, and then everything. We keep pushing these episodes back, so our odds are getting better and better. But uh, supposedly, the scheduled release of the deluxe annotated edition of that is supposed to come out right before we're scheduled to record. So we should be good for that. Um, and I'm not tying us down to anything right now. Uh, we we've mentioned this in passing off mic before, but. You know, it's always conceivable that in the future, even after the Avatar Returns is, has run its course, we could always come back for special episodes just for the various volumes of these comics that come out. I'm, I'm down. I mean, if we're threatening to do it for another Shyamalan fucking movie, we could do, <laughs> we could do it for more Gene Lu and Yang. We should just do it for every Shyamalan movie. No, that's a terrible like, idea. No. Because he's never no. going to make The Last Airbender 2. If he does, we, I will do that. But what I really want is I want us to, to commit to every when the annotated volume of any GLY Avatar comic book comes out and possibly the uh, Kinetsko uh, DiMartino Cora books come out, we should come back. Yes. Fingers crossed do. for that Cora. I really hope that, that those books are come out as well as the as the Avatar ones. But. I, you know, I, I don't think Martino and Kanetsko are going to be maybe as good of comic writers as GLY, but they are all fantastic writers and they understand the characters really well. So I think, I, 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 think good. I think it's uh, not saying Martino is completely uninvolved, but I think it's just Kanetsko doing the actual writing. Yeah. No, no, no. I think it's the other way around. I think it's Martino doing writing and Kanetsko managing the art. Here we go. We're looking this up. <laughs> I read this last. I read this last week. 
let's see. Oh, that's not where I wanted to go. Damn it. Riveting radio. Yes. I'll probably... I, I'm just correct. I think that the, 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 that the boredom the audience is feeling right now, what it's really telling them is Eric is just right. And... <laughs> That's what should be happening. Well, right? Whenever this, I feel an overwhelming yeah, Orlo, sense of boredom, you are not allowed to Google this. It. I hope you can't Google this. <laughs> I, I really yeah, mean I, that because you're going to spoil yourself. Stop. If you're Googling, stop. I'm not Googling anything. Stop. Man, if only Paul? we could trust you. Uh, Legend of Korra comic announces artist. Um, helmed by co-creator Michael Dante DiMartino, the series story. Oh, well will be fully in canon exploring Korra's world following the conclusion of the hit Nickelodeon animated series. Uh, Dark Horse announced the artist Brittany Williams has joined the Korra team, um, who has previously done Marvel's Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat. Um, yep, uh, written yes. by DiMartino, written by DiMartino, and this was back in October, but written by DiMartino and art by Brittany um, Williams. Uh, Brittany, yeah, Brittany Williams. The great Brian Konitzka will be there to provide direction and inspiration, is what it says. But uh, but DiMartino is going to be the writer. So. Whoa, Arlo not only got it wrong, he got it a hundred percent wrong. <laughs> wow. Well, usually that was, when that was. Go ahead. I, 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 I there's I, I was either going to be a hundred percent wrong or not wrong at all. So. The fact that I am 100% wrong, I think, is you know, not worth pointing out. That was that was downright Trumpian of Arlo, his defense there. It's always great moments in podcasting whenever we can catch Arlo being wrong. Okay. Whatever. So, uh, any final comments on this? Any closing thoughts? Eric sucks. All right. I loved this, and I loved that we lucked out by it being 100%. We got the two-spirit bookends of right. season two of Korra, which was phenomenal. And Dude, that wasn't um, luck. That was very, very carefully planned. Was it? But I thought we just sort of – I thought we just lucked into it based on when we were going to read stuff. You did that on purpose? No, absolutely not, because remember, originally I was going to have us do all four of these <laughs> – or all three of these at okay. once. Oh, yeah, okay. Remember? Well, that's right. So, so I – So this, this is me. more this is more your uh, baby than mine now because you're the one that convinced us to do these I, between seasons. I, cont- I entered the Avatar state, and yep. I I knew what the right call was, yep. and um, that's what it was. But this, was, this came out really well, and I am – massively massively excited to get to chorus season three as a result and i think that we have some announcements of when we're going to get to that but um i'm i'm super excited yes right now me too all right so uh arlo before we move on do you want to make any predictions uh you want to do your title prediction for smoke and shadow uh, I feel like it's going to focus mostly on the cigarette-smoking man from the X-Files, yes. uh, who, of course, smokes in the shadows. There you go. Very good. There And and there is an episode of the season of X-Files that Arlo and I are watching right now called Avatar. Mm, that's right. That's right. I saw that coming up, yeah. Coincidence? Mm. I think not. The truth is out there. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, thank you, everybody at home, for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website, theavatarreturns.com. Links will also be posted on our parent show site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Uh, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Make sure you never miss another exciting episode. While you're there, please do us a favor and rate or review us. Uh, it helps spread the word. That really uh, 
that really helps. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, please send your correspondence, care of Monkey Yahtzee. I love how carefully I pronounce these words. Correspondence, care of Monkey. Wow, I never noticed that before. Monkey Yahtzee. I'm making sure people see what I'm doing. I'm I'm putting a flag on these jokes. Uh, at tarpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, and of course, you can always... T-A-R-podcast. T-A-R, that's tar podcast. Or TARP Oddcast. I don't know, however you want to read it. <laughs> uh, and of course, you can always find us on social media. Facebook.com slash The Avatar Returns or Twitter.com slash T-A-R Podcast. And on Twitter, I'm at Haunt1013. Eric is at Salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at Unplugged Crazy. Uh, I'm going to give a rare, specific plug for our parent show, Gobbledygeek, right now. On our most recent episode, episode 290, If You Must Blink, Do It Now, Arlo and I talked about uh, our love for the newest Leica Studios stop-motion animation masterpiece, Kubo and the Two Strings. It's a great film. We had, I think, a great discussion about it. And I think there are more than a few parallels that could be drawn between that film and the story that we just talked about tonight. So if you enjoyed The Rift, do yourself a favor uh, and go see Kubo and the Two Strings and go check out our podcast about it. Um, Next, we are off the air for three weeks as Avatar Sippel wanders the land and opens some spirit portals or something. I don't know what the hell he's doing. Um, we will be returning in late September, I believe, uh, to pick up with Cora and the gang in book three, Change. But uh, until then, remember, Chi clings to your very being like a heavy, suffocating cloak. Take hold of its many dark folds and keep guard against the impish breath of distraction. Nobody wants him! He's uh, done soloing. Mm-hmm. All right. Hey, hey, Eric, can you can you type for a second? I literally, I literally couldn't tell if that was you typing or if I was listening to uh, Moby Dick by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm I'm ready. I'm good to go. I'm glad you got that out of the way. <laughs> so. Let's get started. All right. <laughs> He's still typing. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> I'm so not prepared for this. Are we good? I was ready.
I was born ready. All right, here we go. I'm a star. I'm a brig bite shining star. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. I, have we ever actually had Eric drunk on the show before? I'm not sure. It's not fucking, that different. I fucking love it, dude. No, it's better. It's so much better. <laughs> All right, let's, let's do, do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. God damn it. All right. <laughs> Three, two, one, Avatar. <laughs>